This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Big cities have had to deal with the changing world of ride hailing over the last several years. Historically, cabs provide that function, and the addition of Uber, Lyft, and other services have disrupted that marketplace. Some cities tried unsuccessfully to protect the value of the cab industry, one which sees cabbies play a lot of money, pay a lot of money, I should say, to get medallions, allowing them to transport people across towns or to airports or other locations. But New York City may, just may, have found a way, at least for the next year. The city approved a temporary cap on the number of drivers for ride-hailing services so that they can study the impact that the industry has had over the last few years. We're going to delve deeper into this story with uh, Senthil Viragon, who is a professor of operations, information, and decisions here at the Wharton School. He joins me in studio to discuss this move. And on the phone with us as well is James Parrott, Director of Economic and Fiscal Policies at the New, Center, New School Center for uh, New York City Affairs. And then uh, also joining us is uh, John Kimberly as well. John, great to have you on the show with us. Thank you for your time. Glad to be with you, Dan. James, great to have you with us. Thank you. Good morning. Thank you. Cynthia, great to see you. Thank you for coming in. Glad to be here. Good Thank morning. you. Yeah. First of all, it, did, did this move surprise you? Uh, no. Uh, this is the right way to go, but um, I'm actually surprised that it happened yesterday and quickly. John? Not a surprise at all. Um, I, I think they had to do something. Uh, this is part of, a, obviously, a much deeper story, but... Um, it, it's not a surprise, and uh, the timing, it seems to me, to be right. James? Well, so as a person who uh, is involved in New York City affairs and, and actually worked on a pretty extensive study for the City's Tax and Limousine Commission that looked at this sector and its growth, and in particular its impact on driver, driver earnings, this is not a surprise at all. You know, the, the city had first started talking about capping Uber and Lyft cars in 2015. There was heavy pushback from the industry at that point. In the meantime, the number of trips has skyrocketed, has you know increased to 600,000 600, trips a day right. in New York City. You know more than five times the level of 2015. And and in addition to the cap, a really important part of the legislation that the council passed was to ensure that the drivers receive a minimum pay level that's the independent that's an independent contractor equivalent of $15 an hour after they cover their expenses. Well, take us through uh, what you think, James, uh, that New York City is really trying to figure out with this one year of research. Well, so in the package of bills that were passed yesterday, so so the it does authorize the Tax and Limousine Commission to propose a regulation to ensure minimum pay. So so, so that will be, uh, you know, introduced and probably enacted before the end of the year, and we'll see that. I think on the on the one year cap, the city wants to uh, monitor how the pay standard is working out because actually, in the formula for the pay standard, there's an important incentive for the companies to increase the utilization of drivers' time. Right now, drivers only have a passenger in the car. Uh, for uh, 
about 36 minutes out of every hour. So essentially for 42% of their time, they don't have a paying passenger in the car. The company's business model has obviously been to to flood the streets with cars. They get a commission based on every fare. There's been no incentive for them to better utilize the driver's capital. Keep in mind, this is an industry where the capital investment in the rolling stock, the cars, is uh, entirely put up by the drivers. So the companies have not been very efficiently utilizing the time or the capital investment of the drivers. So the pay standard gives them an incentive by allowing them to pay a little bit less if they make better utilization of the driver's time. So so, so the one-year study period will give the city time to monitor how that pay standard is working out, and we'll see, we'll see what happens with the, with the growth in the, in the number of trips. Uh, you know, just because there's a moratorium on newly licensed uh, for-hire vehicles, which is the term used in, in, in New York City for Uber and AppCars, um, there still will be, be considerable growth in the number of trips that were possible, mainly because the companies will now have this incentive, which they didn't have before, to make better utilization of the driver's time. Santhil? That's exactly right. I think that's uh, that's the most interesting part of the move, I would say. Um, I, I've been running surveys in class um, and about 300 students every year, and one of the things that I uh, commonly see is uh, more than 60 to 70% want waiting times less than about five minutes to six minutes. And, uh, and if you want low waiting times uh, as a consumer, want low waiting times or what Uber calls us as uh, estimated time for arrival, ETAs. If you want low wait times, you have to have high capacity and low utilization. And, um, and it's, it's, uh, it's good to see some numbers here. 58% uh, is a pretty low utilization if you think about operational efficiency and things like that. Um, and that's why Uber and the drivers are on both sides of the story. Uber would like to, as uh, James was saying, flood uh, the city with a lot of drivers. And drivers yeah. would like uh, less drivers to be on the road, and they get better pricing on tickets. Yeah. But, J- John, also, I-, I would think that in terms of the city, they have to be concerned about actually these numbers of extra vehicles that are on their streets. Uh, yeah, obviously, if you've been to New York any time in the last couple of years, you know that New York is a crowded place to begin with, and you've just seen this this upward level of vehicle activity coming onto the streets of New York over the last few years. It's about all the delivery services that uh, have become available, some of which are now t- are two-wheel, some of which are four-wheel, I guess some of which are three-wheel. Um, and w- when you look at the impact of this whole constellation of new services that have emerged probably in the last seven, seven, five to seven years, I mean, I imagine, James, that the, uh, from a planning perspective uh, in the city, this has got to be a huge challenge. How do you regulate not only the Uber and Lyft part of this uh, situation, but also the explosion of these other vehicles on the streets providing sort of instant service for uh, a variety of, of needs that people believe they have? James? Right. And, 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 and there's not only those factors, but also there's a lot of construction activity in Manhattan, residential and commercial. So a lot of construction vehicles on the streets. Tourism has been, you know, it's continued to grow in New York City. Um, 
the 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 uh, density of tourists and the sidewalks is so great it spills over into the street. Yeah, that slows down traffic, makes it hard for for cars to turn and so on. So so you know part of what the city will do in the next year is study the impact of congestion. There's also you know a serious discussion in in Albany about uh, you know how to use congestion pricing, congestion charges on cars, trucks as well as for hire vehicles, whether or not to apply that to the yellow cab sector and so on. So, so there'll be time to analyze different approaches to deal with the different problems. So the congestion problem is one. Um, the for hire vehicle growth has meant that there's much better transportation access in the outer boroughs. So the city doesn't want to diminish uh, that newly uh, available service. And yeah, the city also, you know, has a great interest in making sure that the drivers are able to, you know, uh, remain economically viable to meet their expenses in their cars and to earn a decent living, and hopefully to reduce the number of hours that many drivers, who who now work, you know, drive 10 to 12 hours a day can work less and that will have you know safety benefits as well i i would think i would think james that also it's the infrastructure cost as well that that the city has to be considering because new york like a lot of big cities is a city that at certain points throughout manhattan or or the other boroughs that it is constantly under construction and the roads are are constantly under repair and part of this is also the numbers of vehicles being higher and causing extra wear and tear on the highways that's certainly true, and and you know there's also there's there's been a, a lot of concern with the with the very extensive uh, subway and and uh, public bus system in New York City. There's been sort of a lack of sufficient attention to to maintaining you know what we, a, a, a system that's more than a hundred years old. Uh, so one of the things the state legislature did was to impose a, uh, a surcharge that will begin January 1st on all four hire vehicles and medallion trips of $2.50 to $2.75 to help fund improvements in the, in the mass transit system. A congestion uh, pricing uh, scheme could also help fund mass transit investment. We've seen for the first time during a period of economic growth decline in mass transit ridership in New York City. Now, some people say that that's related to the tremendous growth in the in the apps, and I think that's a factor, but it's also a, a result of underinvestment and underattention to adequately maintaining the mass transit system. So realistically, a lot of people are deciding that instead of riding the subway system in New York, they'd rather take an Uber or a Lyft because of the experience that they've been dealing with over the last few years. Absolutely. It might cost a little more, but uh, but it, you know, it, it, except in Manhattan, where the congestion is so great that the the, yeah. the, the travel times are, are pretty slow. In the outer boroughs, though, um, you know, we've seen a lot of people opt for Ubers and Lyfts as a, a more certain way of getting around. And you know, it, it, there's many aspects of the services that are that are very uh, attractive to consumers. You know, you can you can get an idea right away how long you're going to have to wait. Um, there is concern about the, the the length of the wait time. Our analysis was that even if you increase utilization by 10 percentage points, you know, from 58 to 68 percent, you would only increase average wait times across the city by about 20 to 
to 30 seconds. <laughs> so we, we, you know, we, we sense that most people can uh, live with that. Realistically, Cynthia, though, I mean, we are talking about, even though there are, it, it, you've got so many different aspects of this, there is a, a, a significant financial component that is behind the need to find out more uh, of the impact that these vehicles are having in the city of New York at this point. That's right. I mean, um, if you think about uh, going back to congestion taxes, uh, I think Mayor Bloomberg tried doing this in 2008, and uh, that has been a difficult uh, process. Um, so the city has become congested. MTAs have slowed down, and we know that. Uh, yeah. There are repairs going on. And um, and as uh, James was saying, the ridership uh, numbers have gone down for the, uh, the MTA, the subways. So... I think any policy that has to come in has to balance the different multimodal transportation aspects that people have and uh, balance among the ridership. So that's a complicated thing. So this is a great experiment that we are seeing happen. So this is a good move in many ways. James, I, I think it is interesting that when you hear some of the commentary coming out of this meeting, uh, the city council president, Corey Johnson, it seemed like he also he didn't come right out and say it, but he almost admitted that, that the city has made its mistakes in terms of looking at the regulations of this industry, not in in an earlier fashion. Yeah, no, uh, clearly um, uh, that you know, I, w- I was expecting him to to say that as the next sentence. <laughs> yeah. you know, we bear some responsibility for not acting sooner on this. But you know, the city, the, the both the mayor and the city council had serious had a serious proposal on the table in mid two thousand and fifteen to do something very similar to what they did yesterday in terms of a moratorium. And that was just heavily battered at the time by Uber and the other companies, mainly Uber. Uber had about 90% of the market at that point. Today they have about 66% of the market share. Um, so, uh, but, but today it's different, I think, because people have seen the impact on the, the low earnings of the drivers, the, the more cars that Uber has put on the street, the earnings keep going down. They've seen the impact on medallion drivers. You know, we've had this really yeah. tragic situation where six medallion and four hire vehicle drivers have committed suicide in the past six months because of the economic challenges and difficulties they face in making ends meet. You know, they have to pay for their cars. And and the medallion owner drivers who may have taken out huge loans and mortgaged their houses in order to pay, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars for a medallion, and then you yeah. see the effect of the expansion of the app services diminish, greatly diminish those medallions. So it's created a really economic crisis. So so that you know created a different public opinion and environment this time around. Uh, that, that was going to be my, my question, Cynthia, is what is the, the difference between 2015 and now in terms of the mindset? And obviously part of it is are the people that are living in New York and dealing with this on a day-to-day basis. I think, um, you know, theoretically speaking, there's always a gap between what firms want to optimize and what society wants to optimize. Right. And um, it's hard for individuals to see what's optimal for the society. Right. I, I don't care about drivers riding behind me driving behind me because it's not affecting me so 
um the uh the drop in understanding about uber the difficulties they have had both operationally managerially uh the mta ridership numbers the increasing congestion the explosion of other um uh, other activities around the boroughs um in manhattan so all of this has created variety of choices for people and more understanding perhaps yeah. so uh we have a redo from 2015 to 2017 this is uh, this is definitely almost the same uh, same set of actions and yeah. we are seeing better support for this, I feel. John Kimberly, there, there also seems to me to be a, the aspect, going back to the government side of this for a second, uh, is the fact that we realize that that with all of this innovation going on right now, uh, that business in general is changing on a daily, weekly, monthly, annual basis at this point. But at times it feels like government doesn't change to kind of adapt with all of this change going on. And and I think that goes to the change in leadership and mindset that we have to have on a variety of different levels of government right now. Well, I think, um, you know, I've been fascinated by by listening to what James has to say about the situation as he sees it and has been involved with it um, in the city. Um, And I've got to say I'm I'm impressed by uh, how much, work has been done to try to understand the problem. Granted, it, it might have been done a lot sooner, but it seems to me that the, at least um, in the city of New York, there's a real serious effort to get their arms around the problem and to figure out how to, how to solve it. So I think, that's, I think that's all to the good. I think, I think the, uh, the really interesting, or one of the really interesting leadership problems is the leadership problem at, at Uber itself and, yeah. and how the, the positioning of Uber has changed over time, it has had to change because of the behavior of the enterprise um, itself. And uh, it, it's a little early to tell whether the, uh, the change in leadership at the very top is going to have the kind of impact on Uber and the way Uber operates that uh, I, I think it needs to have in order to continue to be successful. But I think there's a very interesting um, leadership challenge and leadership story um, at the level of the company itself. Especially considering the fact that, that New York is obviously one of their biggest markets right now, John. Absolutely, absolutely. And one, you know, one of the fascinating things to me about this company is that they have, uh, the New York market is one market, but they have you know, literally hundreds of markets around the globe. Yeah. And each market has its own sort of political configuration, uh, its own sort of way of doing business. And when you think about the challenges of operating an enterprise like Uber on a global basis with all the um, sort of local idiosyncrasies that need to be taken into account, both economically and politically, it's a, it's a really interesting challenge. So here's an interesting factoid. Um, if Uber's drivers were employees, they're, they're of course not employees, they're independent contractors, but, but if they were employees and if you looked at their full-time equivalent uh, work week, Uber would be the largest private sector employer in New York City with about 35,000 FTEs. Yeah, that's amazing. So it, it's become a huge enterprise in New York City, and, it, and it's not what people usually think of as gig work, where right. people are doing this to supplement right. uh, other income. <clears throat> we found that 80% of the drivers bought their cars mainly for the purpose of providing transportation services, and two-thirds of the drivers are full-time drivers. And, and that goes, James, to the to the minimum wage, the wage issue that, that involves this problem as well, because potentially you have maybe more and more people thinking of this as full-time work in comparison to what we may have seen uh, a year or two ago. Absolutely. And, you know, it, 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 it's 
it's it's very interesting. You know, the, so there was a set of five bills that were before the city council. One was the cap, one was the pay standard, and and there were some others having to do with wheelchair accessibility and and fines for for non-app uh, for hire vehicle drivers and so on. But but both Uber and Lyft embraced the pay standard proposal which was very interesting and hasn't gotten a lot of attention because all of the attention, most of the attention, yeah. the media attention has been on the cap itself. Yeah. But so here you have a very interesting breakthrough in the United States. We've seen, we've seen in Europe where Uber has provided, you know, health coverage to its employees. Of course, the social safety net is already much greater in Western European countries than it is in the United States. But, but here in the United States for the first time, you know, the two major app companies are embracing the idea of a minimum pay standards for, for drivers. This is going to be, from what I understand, James, it's going to be a year of research, correct? It, it will, although there, there will be some changes right away. You know, and the, the, the pay standard will go forward. Yeah. We'll, we'll see. And, and we'll see how the companies adapt to that. Uh, and, uh, it you know, hopefully we'll be able to monitor and, and gauge how, uh, the companies are increasing efficiency as a result of both the pressure of the moratorium yeah. and of the pay standard and the way the pay standard formula works. I don't think it's by accident that they're embracing the pay standard. I, mean, I, I, I think left to their own devices, they probably would not have done that. But I think um, there's been so much social criticism and, and ballot criticism of, of their model that um, they've really, um, they've had no choice but to embrace this. I think you're absolutely right on, on that. I, I think this will, you, you know, as, as as Uber continues to move toward, uh, you know, trying to do an IPO next year, if they can show that they have stability and regulatory certainty in their largest market in the United, in the United States, that will uh, give investors a lot more certainty about what the potential and prospects for the company are. Are there any moves that, that you see Uber and Lyft coming back with, James? Um, not at this point. I mean, they, uh, you know, they're trying to figure out how they're going to adapt to the moratorium. I think that they, there's uh, a lot of latitude for them to, you know, they've been growing by leaps and bounds. They, they're, uh, the number of trips increased 100% in 2016, 70%. In 2017, I think there's capacity for them to probably grow another 40 percent over the next year, even without any additional cars on the street, just from increased efficiency, having, you know, some of the part time drivers, you know, urging them to be more full time drivers to recruit some of the drivers from the non app services, the traditional Mm -hmm. livery car where the minimum uh, pay standard doesn't work. So. You know they can they could say come work for us we'll right. pay you at least this amount per hour so I think there's there's so so I expect to see them sort of you know use the app uh, technology yes. as a way to respond effectively and I think the result will be a greater level of efficiency and a and a, and a higher you know. Uh, after expense earnings. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.